Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Did you know that controversies surrounding how to translate gender in the Bible had a major impact on Bible translation over the last 30 years? In this episode, we'll briefly overview various feminist movements before examining the NRSV, which proved to be a forerunner for gender-inclusive Bible translations. Next, we'll take a journey through the NIVI and the TNIV controversies at the turn of the 21st century before seeing how evangelical Bible translations both reacted against and appropriated varying degrees of gender accuracy into their Bibles, including such popular translations as the ESV, the HCSB, the NIV 2011, and the CSB. And I'm sorry if that sounds like just a bunch of letters in the alphabet, but I assure you this episode will open your eyes to this major issue and how it affects Bible translation. So here now is episode 344, part 15 of our Bible class, Gender in Bible Translation. There are several important masculine gender words in the Bible that translators wrestle with. The word Adam in Hebrew means mankind, people, or an individual man. The word anthropos in Greek means a person of either sex, a human being, a male person, or a man. Adelphos, the word translated brother, in the plural can also mean brothers and sisters or just a fellow member, those in spiritual communion. These are all words related to gender, and I'm citing for you the standard lexicon, whether Hebrew or Greek, for the Old Testament or the New Testament. Another one is banim, which is the Hebrew word for sons, also translated children, including daughters. In Hebrew, the plural includes both genders. And then ee is the Greek word for sons, offspring or descendants. And then there are many others like it. There's the generic he, there are hypotheticals, and then we have articular participles and so on. I don't want to get into a whole grammar lesson here, but suffice it to say there are many words in our original Bibles, in the original languages, that can come into English either as a masculine or as masculine plus feminine, depending on the context. And the ancient languages didn't really worry about this. But in the late 20th and early 21st century, the whole question of translating gender ended up having a massive impact on our Bible translations. In fact, we probably wouldn't even have several of the most popular Bibles out today if it weren't for a controversy related to this very issue at the end of the 20th and beginning of the 21st centuries. In fact, I was completely unaware of the massive role that gender played in Bible translations and the controversy surrounding that until I did the research on it myself. So here's what our plan is for this episode. We want to talk about feminism ever so briefly, and then look at the NRSV, which is the forerunner of gender-inclusive versions, then the NIVI slash TNIV controversies, then we'll look at reactionary translations, and then finally, recent moderating positions. So that's our plan. As far as the feminist movement goes, I am certainly no expert on this, but just in very broad strokes, you had the first wave feminist movement was at the end of the 
19th century, early 20th century, the right to vote, also called suffrage. That's they, I, typically identified as the first wave feminist movement. Second wave is the 1960s and 70s. I hear my parents and people of their generation often refer to it as the women's lib movement or the women's liberation movement. And that was the time when Roe v. Wade occurred, 1973, which gave access to abortion as well as career opportunities. And so it's a, it's a whole mixture of different issues in the second, second wave. And then the third wave occurred in the 90s and the early 2000s. And this is when a, a lot of the questions about gender roles came into the subject of Bible translation and why it's so relevant to us. Uh, but in, in the feminist waves, one of the items of discussion is roles in the church and roles in the home. And so traditionally, Christians have held to the idea that pastors are to be men and that in the home, the husband is to be the head of the household. And the feminist critique interacted with Bible-believing Christians such that some of them became what, what uh, we call egalitarians, or what they call themselves egalitarians, and others became complementarians. And the egalitarians said that Christians, whether male or female, can serve in either role or any role, whether it's uh, the head of the house, could be the wife, or could be the man, or they could share it equally. Same thing in the church, you could have women pastors. And so really, you end up with a lot of uh, different positions within Christianity. On the one, and I, I realize I'm simplifying this a little bit, but my subject's really not feminism, it's Bible translation, so just stick with me for a second. But historically, how it worked out is you had the mainline denominations. You had your Episcopalians, your Lutherans, your certain Presbyterians, and you know these, a lot of these denominations split over these kinds of issues. And they said, we are egalitarian, and we want to have women priests and we, women pastors. And that started out in the 70s and then grew from there forward. And then by the time of the 90s, a lot of your more conservative Christian groups are saying, look, we, we want to fight against this feminist wave that is sweeping through. The mainline denominations have already gone with it. We need to hold them back here. And there was a what's typically called a culture war over this issue. And so some Bible-believing Christians ended up becoming egalitarians and others took their stand as complementarians. And this is just sort of in the air in the 90s, especially early 2000s. And it's something that people are very sensitive to and very much have a strong viewpoint on. And that ends up affecting Bible translations considerably. Now, for me, personally, uh, the whole issue of egalitarian versus complementarian, I'm open to either side. Uh, for me, it's an exegetical question. You know, how, how do you interpret the scriptures, and you know, especially the scriptures like Colossians 3, 1 Timothy 2, and Ephesians 5 that, that talk about the roles in the household and in the church? If you're curious what I think, I would refer you to Kathy Keller's book. It's more of a booklet, actually. Uh, called Jesus, Justice, and Gender Roles, and uh, I found her case to be pretty persuasive. Uh, but what in the world does third-wave feminism have to do with translation? Well, before we get into that, there is one more issue related to Christianity 
and feminism that we need to discuss and just ever so briefly again. And this is the whole question of pronouns with reference to God. And this issue was popularized in Elizabeth Johnson's 1992 book called She Who Is. And this is the idea that God is not a male. God is beyond gender, obviously. Uh, and so some people are, are pushing for referring to God in neutral terms or uh, just not referring to God in gendered ways at all or referring to God as a she. So, for example, when I went to seminary and I went to a mainline Christian seminary, it was considered improper to ever use masculine pronouns for God. And so my teachers would go out of their way, I'm not all of them, but some of them would go out of their way to use the word God over and over again rather than ever using any pronouns, especially not he, him, or his. So for example, the sentence, God sent Moses as God's emissary to bring God's demands to Pharaoh. You notice I use the term God three times there. Somebody that doesn't have this sensitivity or requirement in their language would just have said, God sent Moses as his emissary to bring his demands to Pharaoh. Others, people want to pray to God, our mother who is in heaven, instead of our father who is in heaven. So this is a whole other issue, and it's really something that I think doesn't relate so much to Bible translation, to be honest, because even in our more mainline Bible translations like the NRSV, for example, they don't mess with the pronouns related to God. And I can confidently say that in the 21st century, where people are so concerned to respect other people's preferences for pronouns, that we can certainly respect God's own preference for pronouns as He revealed them in the Scriptures. And God has revealed Himself using masculine pronouns, and I don't, I don't see us as having the right to overturn what God preferred in Scripture. So this subject of God's gender doesn't play in so much to Bible translation. The subject, the question of generic masculines, though, plays in big time, and I want to get into that right now with you. So our story begins with the New Revised Standard Version. Uh, this came out in 1989, 1990, when Bruce Metzger wrote the following in the preface. This is a quote from the NRSV preface. During the almost half a century since the publication of the RSV, many in the churches have become sensitive to the danger of linguistic sexism arising from the inherent bias of the English language towards the masculine gender, a bias that in the case of the Bible has often restricted or obscured the meaning of the original text. The mandates from the division specify that in references to men and women, masculine-oriented language should be eliminated as far as this can be done without altering passages that reflect the historical situation of ancient patriarchal culture. As can be appreciated, more than once the committee found that the several mandates stood in tension and even in conflict. The various concerns had to be balanced case by case in order to provide a faithful and acceptable rendering without using contrived English. Only very occasionally has the pronoun he or him been retained in passages where the reference may 
have been to a woman as well as to a man. For example, in several legal texts in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, in such instances of formal legal language, the options of either putting the passage in plural or of introducing additional nouns to avoid masculine pronouns in English seem to the committee to obscure the historic structure and literary character of the original. In the vast majority of cases, however, inclusiveness, this is a key term for this whole subject, has been attained by simply rephrasing or by introducing plural forms when this does not distort the meaning of the passage. Of course, in narrative and in parable, no attempt was made to generalize the sex of individual persons. So what this, uh, just in my own words, summarizing this means is that the NRSV went out of its way to do everything they could to present the Bible as, as relevant for women as it is for men uh, any, anywhere possible. So that's the strategy they used, and yet, even though they were so keen to include women whenever possible, they still included verses like, for example, Colossians 3.18 and 19, which reads, Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and never treat them harshly. Uh, or 1 Timothy chapter 3, the NRSV reads in verse 2, Now a bishop must be above reproach, married only once. Um, so this, this phrase, married only once, is in the Greek, the husband of one wife. Uh, so they sort of included option, uh, female options there. But then down in verse 4, they write, he must manage his own household well, indicating that it is actually a, a man in view as the potential hypothetical bishop in reference here. Well, evangelical churches and seminaries basically just rejected the NRSV, while mainline churches and seminaries and probably most, I'm guessing, secular universities wholeheartedly embraced the NRSV, which is why if you go to a non-Christian school and you take a Bible class, they will typically require you to buy the Oxford annotated edition of the New Revised Standard Version. But among evangelicals, they're, they're not going to use the NRSV because they don't agree with the gender inclusiveness, at least not in the 90s for sure. Now someone even mentioned that Metzger, upon hearing that uh, some preacher had bought a bunch of NRSVs when it first came out in the, in the year 1990 and had uh, stacked them up in the front yard of the church and burned them as a demonstration. And Mesker allegedly quipped, well, at least they're just burning the Bibles now and not the translators. <laughs> so um, that's kind of an interesting little window into American Bible translation history. So the NRSV came out and, and it, it did certainly do a lot with gender inclusiveness and it was really very much as far as Bible translations go on the cutting edge of that but it was limited to mainline denominations and secular, secular universities. As far as evangelicals go the real splash didn't occur until much later when the NIVI came out and so the NIV for those of you who are not familiar is the New International Version. It's a version that started coming out in 1973 but the revised, completed edition of 1984 really held sway for a very long time, such that in the year 1996, for example, 32% of all Bible sales were the NIV, which was strongly in first place, second place being the King James Version at 23.5%. So the NIV really dominated the evangelical market. So in 1992, the NIV's committee 
on Bible translation began working on a gender-inclusive edition of the NIV. And this came out in 1996, and it was referred to as the NIVI, but only in England. did not come out in America. So that's the NIV Inclusive Language Edition. About that same time in 1996, Wayne Grudem, who was very involved in this whole battle all the, along the way, uh, wrote a little essay called, What's Wrong with Gender-Neutral Bible Translations? And uh, so this was fighting against the New Revised Standard Version in 1996. And so he's, he's kind of like blowing the whistle on the NRSV as a Bible that is not fitting because of its gender inclusiveness. Meanwhile, the uh, company, the publisher Zondervan, had just released the NIVI in the England market, and it is a gender inclusive version. So uh, this is all comes to a head in March of 1997 when World Magazine ran a cover story called Femme Fatale. And the subtitle of that cover story by Susan Olasky was The Feminist Seduction of the Evangelical Church. Doesn't that just make you want to read it? <laughs> the Feminist Seduction of the Evangelical Christian Church. The new international version of the Bible, the best-selling English version in the world, is quietly going gender neutral. Uh, so this article was a bombshell. It was picked up all over the place and it became very popular. It made a big imprint in America. Olasky, in that article, called the NIVI a stealth Bible. So in 1997, many evangelicals re reacted against the 1996 NIVI, which wasn't even available in the United States, uh, including J.I. Packer, Paige Patterson, Al Mohler, Jerry Falwell, James Dobson, and many others. The Southern Baptist Convention and a number of others secretly met with Zondervan and said, look, if you release the NIVI in America, we're telling all of our outlets, all of our seminaries, all of our churches to stop buying NIV Bibles and NIVI Bibles. Uh, so it was a huge sense of a battle over the Bible occurring in 1997. So the whole thing really uh, resolved on uh, May 27th, 1997, the same day, two major things happened. The IBS, the International Bible Society, which is the team in charge of translating the NIV, issued a press release saying they had abandoned all plans to have gender-related changes in future editions of the NIV. They're not going to release the NIVI in America. So that happened May 27, 1997. The same day, James Dobson convened a group of 12 evangelical leaders and drafted up what was called uh, a guidelines of translations of gender-related language in Scripture. Usually people refer back to this uh, document, it's a fa fairly short document, only about two pages, as the Colorado Springs Guidelines. And so the question is, going forward, does this or that English Bible agree with the Colorado Springs Guidelines? That's the guideline set out by James Dobson and these other evangelicals in 1997. For example, just to give you some flavor of what the guidelines included, Section A, Proposition 3 said that man should ordinarily be used to designate the human race or human beings in general. So they want the Bible translations to use man to refer to the human race, even though that's really the whole issue that's going on is that people are saying, well, man is a masculine, inclusive term, but it has a masculine flavor to it. What about using people or humanity and this sort of thing? Uh, Section B, Proposition 1 said that brother Adelphos and brothers Adelphi should not 
be changed to, quote, brothers and sisters. We'll see how this plays out in the ESV in just a minute here. Uh, Section B, Proposition 2, said that son should not be changed to child or sons to children or sons and daughters. And so these are specific, very targeted guidelines for Bible translation. The very next day, May 28th, uh, as well as the day after that, the 29th in 1997, USA Today, the New York Times, and the Associated Press all reported that the gender-neutral NIV had been canceled. I mean, look, this is, this is incredible. I mean, I was, I was alive at this time. I didn't hear anything about this, but there, I was maybe too young to really care. But, you know, th- this is huge. I mean, these are, these are big news outlets and publications that are fussing about Bible translation. I, I just, it just blows my mind that the New York Times ever said anything about the Bible. Uh, but uh, this, was, this was that big of a controversy. Uh, for, then in 1998, books started coming out. Right? So you have people that, and, and this is all within the evangelical scope. You have Don Carson coming out with his book, The Inclusive Language Debate, A Plea for Realism. That's 1998. Uh, Mark L. Strauss came out with his book, Distorting Scripture, The Challenge of Bible Translation and Gender Accuracy. Uh, and we're going to see that term, gender accuracy, coming forward in just a little bit here. So then in 1999, the IBS started working on a new version of the NIV since they had to kill the NIVI but they didn't specify the name of what it was going to be. Then in 2000, I'm just going through a timeline with you here. In 2000, Vern Polythris and Wayne Grudem fought back against Carson and Strauss in their book called The Gender-Neutral Bible Controversy, Muting the Masculinity of God's Words. And then in 2001, we got the English Standard Version published by Crossway. The ESV had obtained the rights, and guess what year? 1997 to the RSV from the National Council of Churches so that they could begin work on their own uh, over against the NRSV. And so basically they're like, well, we know that the NRSV had revised the RSV, but we don't agree with what they did. We're going to revise it ourselves. And uh, so here's the ESV's statement on gender from their preface. Quote, in the area of gender language, the goal of the ESV is to render literally what is in the original. For example, anyone replaces any man where there is no word corresponding to man. So that's, that is actually in favor of gender inclusiveness. Anyone, once again, replaces any man where there is no corresponding word for man in the original languages. And people rather than men is regularly used where the original languages refer to both men and women. So these are both efforts to make the the Bible more inclusive of men and women when the original languages aren't pushing masculine pronouns and so on. It goes on, but the words man and men are retained where a male meaning component is part of the original Greek or Hebrew. Likewise, the word man has been retained where the original text intends to convey a clear contrast between God on the one hand and man on the other hand with man being used in the collective sense of the whole human race. Similarly, the English word brothers, translating the Greek Adelphi, is retained as an important familial form of address between fellow Jews and fellow Christians in the first century. A recurring note is included to indicate that the term brothers was often used in Greek to refer to both men and women, and to indicate the specific instances in the text where this is the case. In addition, the English word sons 
is retained in specific instances because the underlying Greek term usually includes a male meaning component and it was used as a legal term in the adoption of inheritance laws of first century Rome. As used by the Apostle Paul, this term refers to the status of all Christians, both men and women, who, having been adopted into God's family, now enjoy all the privileges, obligations, and inheritance rights of God's children. Let me pause it there. So what they said is that they want to use the term man to refer to the human race. They want to use the word brothers to refer to brothers and sisters. And they want to use the term sons to refer to sons and daughters. That's like classic Colorado Springs guidelines of translation, if you didn't notice. Uh, they continue, the inclusive use of the generic he has also regularly been retained because this is consistent with similar usage in original languages and because an essentially literal translation would be impossible without it. In each case, the objective has been transparency to the original text, allowing the reader to understand the original on its own terms rather than in the terms of our present-day Western culture. So the ESV looks to me like it's in complete agreement with the Colorado Springs guidelines and they updated this version. It came out in 2001, but then the updates came out in 2007, 2011, 2016, and 2017. I think, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, the 2016 version of the ESV said the permanent text edition, like we're never going to change it again, and then they changed it in 2017. So I don't know if there are more <laughs> updates planned or not for the ESV, but just so you know, the ESV would not exist if the NRSV hadn't gone gender inclusive. Or at least that was one of the issues for which it uh, corrected. In 2002, so that was 2001, 2002, Zondervan came out with its new NIV. They called it the TNIV. And that was the New Testament only in 2002, at which point 100 evangelical leaders signed a statement of concern opposing the TNIV. Also, the Southern Baptist Convention and the Presbyterian Church of, in America passed resolutions opposing the TNIV. This is the resolution that the Southern Baptist Convention passed. Quote, whereas the translators erased these gender-specific details in two ways. One, they eliminated gender-specific terms. It's talking about the TNIV. Changing father to parent, son to child, brother to fellow believer, man to mortals, humans or those, and he to they, so that gender-specific meanings are eliminated. And two, they added gender-specific readings that are not found in the original text, such as changing brother to brother or sister, so that any gender-specific emphasis of the passage is eliminated. We respectfully request that the agencies, boards, and publishing arms of the Southern Baptist Convention, which is, by the way, the largest denomination in the United States, refrain from using this translation. We cannot commend the TNIV to Southern Baptists or the larger Christian community. So that was what happened with the TNIV, strong response among evangelicals, just like the NIVI of, what was it, 96? So, so it was with the TNIV of 2002. Then the Southern Baptist Convention decided, you know what, why are we dealing with Zondervan? Why are we dealing with this NIV? We have seminaries, we have scholars, let's just make our own Bible. And that was the Holman Christian Standard Bible. It was published by Lifeway, which is the publishing arm of the Southern Baptist Convention in the year 2004, specifically because of their disappointments with the NIVI and the TNIV and whatever else was coming down the pipeline in future years. And so the introduction to the Holman Christian Standard Bible, we read the following. Some people today ignore the Bible's teachings on distinctive roles of men and women in family and church and have an agenda to eliminate those distinctions in every arena of life. 
boy, I wonder what, <laughs> wonder, wonder, wonder what they think. Anytime you start a sentence with some people, <laughs> you know, there's a, a heated controversy behind it, right? So some people don't think this is important, but we do, and so you should really, you know, get our Bible because we take gender seriously. They continue, these people have begun a program to engineer the removal of a perceived male bias in the English language. They won't even admit there is a male bias. It's perceived male bias. The targets of this program have been such traditional linguistic practices as the generic use of man or men as well as he, him, and his. A group of Bible scholars, translators, and other evangelical leaders met in 1997 to respond to this issue as it affects Bible translation. This group produced the Guidelines for Translation of Gender-Related Language in Scripture. That's the Colorado Springs Guidelines. Adopted May 27, 1997, revised September 9th. The HCSB was produced in accordance with these guidelines. The goal of the translators has not been to promote a cultural ideology, but to faithfully translate the Bible. While the HCSB avoids using man or he, unnecessarily the translation does not restructure sentences to avoid them when they are in the text. For example, the translators have not changed him to you or to them, neither have they avoided other masculine words such as father or son by translating them in generic terms such as parent or child. So this controversy over gender is partly what was behind the NRSV, partly what was, uh, well majorly what was behind the NIVI which died, and then the TNIV which we'll see in a minute died as well. You can't even get these two versions anymore as well as the, H the ESV and the HCSB. I mean, this is, this is huge. This is like generating Bible translations everywhere. In 2005, they finally, finally completed the TNIV and published it, and it had mixed reception among evangelicals. Some evangelicals like Craig Blomberg, Daryl Bach, Don Carson, Lee Strobel, these are not small names in evangelicalism. They all embraced the TNIV and thought it was a, a great translation. Then, other powerful evangelicals like John MacArthur, J.I. Packer, D. James Kennedy, and John Piper all rejected the TNIV on the grounds of gender inclusion. So in 2011, jumping ahead a little bit, the NIV decided, all right, we failed the NIVI. People aren't accepting and, and purchasing the TNIV because ultimately if you publish a Bible, you want people to purchase it, right? And for Zondervan, which had done so well with the NIV for so long, I mean seriously, dominating the market for decades, uh, they really wanted to get this whole issue squared away. So in 2011 they decided to release a new NIV, except they called it the NIV. So it's the, so you have the 1984 NIV and then you have the 2011 NIV. I guess when your Bible translation is called the New International Version, it's hard to come out with a new version because it would be the New New International Version, the NIV. I don't know. But they called it just the same as the regular NIV and they rolled back 25% of the TNIV's gender inclusiveness, uh, about 933 changes, but they kept most of it. So you have the NIVI, which was pretty radical in gender inclusiveness, and then they kind of toned that down to the TNIV, and then they toned that down again to the NIV 2011, just a little bit, and with each successive edition, they got closer to what the original languages said and, and sort of like ditched some of their more creative ideas, and each one got accepted more and more by evangelicals, such that the 2011 NIV has been accepted uh, by, by many. However, 
In the midst of all of this controversy, there was an organization born called the Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood, and this uh, council has has uh, pointed out a lot of the flaws with the language in the 2011 NIV. However, others, such as Dan Wallace, a very influential textual scholar, he praised the NIV 2011. Uh, however, the, the Southern Baptist Convention and the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod uh, condemned the 2011 NIV. But interestingly enough, and this is one of these ironies of life, well, there, there's going to be another irony in just a minute, but the, uh, the, the string of Christian bookstores called Lifeway continued selling the NIV 2011, even though the denomination that sort of like owns Lifeway condemned it. So go figure. Uh, but that's not the end of our story. Zondervan moved after the 2011 edition came out to suppress the previous attempts or previous versions. So basically in 2011, uh, when it came out, Zondervan said, all right, if you have a project in print, you can use the old NIV. But starting in 2012, nobody's allowed to print the 1984 NIV. Nobody's allowed to print the NIVI. Nobody's allowed to print the TNIV. If you quote the NIV, it's got to be the 2011 version. And so that is when, you know, subsequent years, you refer to the NIV. That's what you're referring to is the 2011 version of the NIV. So then later on, this is the other irony I mentioned, in the year 2016, the HCSB, which we read the intro to, it was very, very combative, very much like we're going to be as masculine as possible, right? So that was the 2004 edition. In 2016, they came out with a new version. They dropped the H instead of the Holman Christian Standard Bible. Now it's just called the CSB or the Christian Standard Bible. In their document, Q&A, Translation Decisions for the Christian Standard Bible, they explain their new gender policy. Check this out. To improve accuracy, they write, the Translation Oversight Committee chose to avoid being unnecessarily specific in passages where the original context did not exclude females. In other words, they worked hard to include females when the language didn't exclude females. In other words, they were gender inclusive. Continuing on. When scripture presents principles or generic examples that are not restricted to males, the CSB does not use man or he or other masculine terms. At the same time, the translators chose not to make third-person masculine pronouns inclusive by rendering them as plurals, they or them, because they believed it was important to retain the individual and personal sense of these expressions. After all of this controversy and battle, the CSB what, 20, 30 years, 25 years later, ends up more or less where the NRSV started out in the year 1990. Uh, I think you could probably find some significant differences, but they've definitely come closer together, whereas before that, the previous version had reacted strongly against us. Now, so now the CSB is, is really gender inclusive, and the ESV is more masculine heavy, and then uh, just to throw another translation in there, the NASB came out in the 70s and it was updated in 95. The, the NASB, all the translation work for that happened before this controversy broke out. So it's excessively masculine heavy. Even when the Greek or the Hebrew doesn't contain a masculine word, the NASB will insert a masculine word there. So that's probably the most masculine heavy version of the you know, last 30, 40 years. And then the HCSB, 
and the ESV, and then now the CSB is less, and then the NRSV is even less than that, and then the um, 2011 NIV is right up there with the NRSV. So it's really fascinating to see this. And guess what? The mainstream media was not unaware of this, this irony. So uh, jo Jonathan Merritt and Garrett Robinson wrote an article in The Atlantic called Southern Baptists Embrace Gender-Inclusive Language in the Bible. And for that, they interviewed a Trevin Wax. This is what they wrote in their article. In email correspondent this week, Trevin Wax, Bible and Reference Publisher for Holman Bibles, defended the translation. He rejected the notion that the translation is gender-neutral, calling it gender-accurate instead. It uses male pronouns for God, for pastors, and in places where it's obviously male. And it uses male and female where that's what the author intended, Wax said. A gender-accurate approach often uses inclusive language, Wax said, but only in places when the original would have been understood to refer to both males and females. Such a defense of the CSB mirrors those offered by NIV defenders in years past. Where are we at today? This is a helpful summary by Gordon Fee and Mark Strauss. It's written a little while ago, but I think it, it, it helpfully summarizes where most Bible translators are at in our, in our time. One of the most significant changes in English over the last quarter century has been related to gender language. While it was once commonplace to refer to people as men and all fellow Christians as brothers, such usage has declined significantly in recent years. More inclusive terms like people and brothers and sisters are used more often today. Bible translators seeking to stay current with contemporary English have adapted to these changes. Over the past 30 years, almost every English Bible version, either produced or revised, has adopted this kind of gender-accurate language. While some critics claim that the movement toward gender-accurate language is a form of political correctness, the truth is that such language has made our Bible translations more precise and so more accurate. The English language has changed, and for many readers, man now sounds like it refers exclusively to males. Now, if you say man, people don't automatically think, oh, the human race. No, they're thinking men. Uh, in order to adapt to the language of the times, Bible translations are using phrases, words like people or a phrase like human beings, that sort of thing. So hopefully this overview was helpful for you to understand how this has been such a major issue in Bible translation over the last 25 years. Gender directly or indirectly spawn the NIVI, the TNIV, the NIV 2011, the ESV, the HCSB, the CSB, and I don't know if there's any translation coming out in the next few years that's not going to take this whole issue very seriously and make a decision based on what they think is right. So it is a really important subject. Now it's time to, for us to evaluate a couple of influential translations, including the King James Version and the Message, and we'll do that We'll begin doing that next time in our continuing quest to understand how we got the Bible. Well, that's it for this episode. What do you think? I'd love to hear your comments. Come on to restitudio.org and leave a comment on episode 344, Gender and Bible Translation, and join your voice in the mix. Uh, also on that website, as well as the show notes on your device, I have an extensive list of books on both sides of this issue for further research if you're interested in it. Also, on episode 337, Other New Testament Manuscripts, Devin wrote in the following, If I may leave a small correcting comment, unless I am wrong, I just finished listening to this episode and I noticed you said Codex Vaticanus is in the British Library next to Sinaiticus. 
I had the chance to visit the British Library on one of my trips to England two years ago. I did get to do some research and see Codex Sinaiticus, but Codex B was not there. Actually, William Tyndale's Bible and an original 1611 King James Version was there. I think I read or maybe heard Daniel Wallace speaking about his research into Codex B, and he said that it was in the Vatican when he visited there. I don't think this is a big deal to most people, but I personally made a special trip in King's Cross to go see the manuscripts in England, so it may be important to someone else to know what's there. Maybe someone can correct me if, I, if, if it actually is there. Thanks again for the series. I'm quite enjoying it. Uh, Devin, thank you for writing in and for listening. In episode 337, it's not really when I focused on the major codices, Vaticanus, Sinaiticus, and Alexandrinus. That would have been an earlier episode, 336, on the unseals. But um, I must have mentioned them in that episode. So uh, just to clarify, in so far as I understand it, in the British Museum, you have Codex Sinaiticus since the 1800s, and then also Codex Alexandrinus. So in their sigla, their abbreviations, that would be Aleph and A. But uh, B, Codex Vaticanus, you are correct, is called Vaticanus because it lives in the Vatican since I think at least the 1400s, if I'm not mistaken, there about the middle of the 1400s is the first records they have of the library. And Codex Vaticanus is already there. So yeah, you're going to have to go to Italy if you want to see Vaticanus. And to be honest, I don't even know if it's on display I do know that it was uh, quite controversial in the 1800s to get access to this manuscript, even though by many accounts it is the best uh, or one of the best uh, Greek New Testament manuscripts on the planet. So uh, thanks for that correction, Devin. I must have misspoken if I said Vaticanus was in England. Vaticanus is in the Vatican, and Sinaiticus and Alexandrinus, they are in England uh, as well as tons of other stuff. My goodness, uh, England has, in the British Museum in particular, just so much, so many treasures uh, to examine. And uh, I, I, for one, would love to go someday, uh, as well as to the uh, National Library in France and the one in St. Petersburg, Russia, and some other places. But, uh, hey, I guess I'm going to have to hold on any va- any travel plans for right now with the way things are with covid but uh, thanks for pointing that out, Devin. I appreciate the correction. That's it for this week. If you'd like to support Restitutio, you can do that at restitutio.org. We'll see you next time. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.